Christmas. Anybody else love Christmas time? I love the holidays. I, I love Christmas trees. I love Christmas movies. I love uh, Christmas smells. I love Christmas drinks. I love peppermint ice cream. Uh, come on, somebody, right? Peppermint ice cream is, is dang good. i I'll be honest with you, I don't do a lot of ice cream. So do they have that year round? I feel like it's seasonal. Is it seasonal? It is seasonal. That's right, because it's wonderful and it's Christmas. All right. As you notice, we got some Christmas trees up. Uh, we're 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 going for it. We we love taking time uh, to look at the power of what this season is for us as followers of Jesus. This is not just some random holiday. This is a celebration of the coming of the living God from heaven down to earth, the beginning of the greatest rescue mission that has ever happened in the history of humanity. And we get to look for the next four weeks right into the throne room of grace with confidence and just be reminded of the power of the coming of Jesus. And these, this season we're in, is actually celebrated by churches all over the world. It's so cool. It's called the season of Advent. How many of you knew that? Season of Advent. And, and so we're joining in with believers all over the world saying, hey, you know what? From now until Christmas Eve, we're gonna look at the power of the hope, of the peace, of the joy, and the love that we have access to because Jesus came. And I want to invite you all to our Christmas Eve service that will be here at our South Campus at 4.30 p.m. Is the time right? No one from my team's in the room. It is at 4.30. If it wasn't, now it is. It'll be at 4.30. Sam's saying it is, okay. 4.30 right here on Christmas Eve. Uh, and we have a tradition here at Antioch that we really see that Christmas Eve service as an opportunity for you to invite your friends, invite your family, maybe even people in your life that don't know God, they don't know Jesus, they don't experience or have, they haven't come to a saving understanding of what this season really means for our lives. Bring them to Christmas Eve. It is a time where we will share the truth of who Jesus is and year in and year out, we see people make life transforming decisions on that night. It'll be great. Uh, we're going to light candles, which is always a blast. Bring your kids. They'll get to play with fire. All right. Um, now, I want to pull you guys in on some exciting things that are happening. Uh, some of you have heard this if you were at the Build the House dinner. Um, but there's some things that are going to be shifting around over the next couple of months here at Antioch, and uh, they're, they're all really good things. And, and Psalm 133 says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Can I just read that again? How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. And, and we've heard this phrase a lot over the past few years, and it really holds so much truth. We are better together. We're better together. Uh, starting a, a, a few months ago, I, I couldn't be in a meeting uh, of any kind where somebody wasn't sharing John 17, 21. It was like over and over and over again. John 17, 21. I remember the first time a guy who's a business leader here in the city was like, man, God's just been speaking to me about John 17, 21. And he looked at me as if I had the entire Bible memorized, as if I just knew 
what that scripture was. I was like, bro, you're going to have to help me. And so he read it to me. He said that they may all be one. Everybody say one. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me. This is Jesus speaking. Just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus' prayer for us is that we would be one. And as we step into that kingdom unity, it has world impact potential. It has world impact potential that the world may believe that you have sent me. And, And as, you know, this journey was going on in me where I was encountering these people or were telling me this and God was speaking to me about John 17, 21 and all these different things. I pulled our elders in and I was like, all right, guys, I, I want us to hear God together. It seems like God is continuing to highlight this unity word, uh, but truthfully, I, I don't have a lot of understanding about what it is that God's trying to say in total. And so would you guys begin to pray with me and with our team on how we begin to respond to what God was saying. And as we began to pray and really ask God to speak to us about how we needed to respond, it got really clear really fast. And it was that we needed to enter into a season of meeting in one place and not two places. Now, if you're new to Antioch, you might not know that we actually have two locations. We have a south campus, which you are at right now, and we have a north campus um, that meets in North Austin. And God just began to speak to our eldership team that we needed to enter into a season where we wouldn't meet in two separate places, but that we would meet in one place. And I just want to say that the vision that God gave us from day one as a church We planted this church six years ago. Uh, My wife and Moses and um, uh, Sarah Chun, who I think dropped her kid off and then went to go get coffee. Nope, she's there. Oh, she came back. Thought she was going to do free babysitting there for a minute. Um, uh, we, We moved here with a dream in our heart to see God establish a church that would reach our city Um, Because we really believe that what happens here changes the world. Amen? For all of you UT people, that is my, that is as low as I'm going to go. I went to Baylor. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But I'm going to give you that little, okay, I'm going to give you that. Okay, you got that right. What starts here changes the world. And from day one, we knew that God had called us to be a church in the city for the city. What that means is, is that we believed that God wanted us to have places of impact that were of easy access to people all over the city, that we would have campuses that would be meeting together. We would have one house that had many rooms, that we would share vision, that we would share teams, that we would share and be one place, but that we would meet in different locations. Now, truthfully, as we dreamed into that, we thought that was like 20 years down the road, because when you're planting a church, you're like, you know, do we just have somebody that can... um, set up chairs. That would be awesome, you know, so you're not really thinking about a multi-campus strategy at day one, but God fast-forwarded that vision into a reality and really confirmed it in us when a few years ago we were given this building. 
And it's been an amazing journey. It's been awesome and we've loved it. And it has been a beautiful place for us to meet and to gather. It's been amazing. It's been awesome. And it just sealed in us that that is the vision that God has for us. It accelerated it um, by years. I mean, we didn't think that we would have two locations at six years, no chance. And, and, and hear me, I, I still feel that that is the vision that God's given us. I still totally believe that. I'm unwavered in that, actually. It's been so confirmed. It's been so just, light, just laid out for us by God and just confirmed by people all around us that we're still building towards that. That is still our goal. That is still our ambition. That is still our prayer, that we would be a church that has campuses all over the city. They would be a church that's in the city for the city. But we really have feel like God is speaking to us on how we're going to get there in a fresh way. And we believe that being together in one place at one time at the same time is going to bring us into a season of strength. It's going to bring us into a season of momentum that it truthfully that has been a little bit harder to experience post-COVID. It's going to bring us into a season of deepening our value for community. It's going to establish, I believe, in a fresh way, the church that God has really called us to be in the city of Austin. And, and, and so we just began to pray as this got clear to us that we needed to be in one place for a season and not multiple places for a season. We were like, God, okay, you're going to have to provide a place that's going to work for everybody. And that's kind of a challenging prayer. And, and so we said, okay, Lord, would you give us a place that's central for us? There, if you've lived in Austin for 20 years, you know there is no central Austin. It keeps moving, sliding around. But give us a place that's central for us. And as we began to pray that God would do that, God answered that prayer by giving us one of our high school. We actually mapped out, I think we have it on the screens, we mapped out about a couple hundred people in our church that have either served or tithed in the past year. And we put it out on this uh, giant Google map and uh, one of our high school was right in the middle of the dots. It was crazy. We were like, wow, this is, this is, this is really, really nuts. And so um, we're gonna be starting this one campus, one service season on January 1st. And um, what January 1st is going to feel like is a prayer service. Um, and so we want you to be there. We want you to come. If you're in town, uh, we want you to be a part of it. But we're going to set everything up, and then we're literally going to spend the time that we have normally allocated for church is we're going to walk around all the kids' space, the auditorium, the parking lots, everything, and we're going to to say, God, would you establish something here that is going to not just reach our city, but reach the nations. And then January 8th is going to be our kind of first official Sunday, if you will, where if you come, it's going to feel like normal church. Okay. Um, and we're going to do that through June, through the end of June. And uh, as I've said multiple times, if I've communicated about this in different uh, venues and uh, different groups of people, you know what? I wish I could tell you what happens next. Uh, God has not spoken that, and I'm not in the business of putting words in his mouth. 
And, and so we are eagerly saying, Lord, would you speak to us and give us clarity about what is going to happen after June? And we believe that he will. We believe he's going to speak with great clarity to our entire elder team. We believe that just like we heard him in unity about this season, that we will hear him in unity about the next season. But we want to invite you to come and be a part of that. We know that there's a lot of factors that, that go into where you go to church um, and uh, that this might make it too far for you. And, you know, we understand that as well. But I want to invite you. I, I want to I ask you to take this risk with us to jump in with full hearts and big faith into this new season that God is calling us into. Uh, because I, I, I don't fully understand always what heaven is doing, but I always trust what he's saying. And, and there's a significance to this coming together for such a time as this that we really want to respond to and be obedient to. And uh, you know what, truthfully, church, I, I am excited for the things to come. I am so excited for it I, I, with eager expectation. I'm loving these moments that we have as we're leaning up to it, but I am very excited for January 8th to see what God does through it. Amen? Amen. Now, but for today, oh, let me say, dang it, I forgot this. We've got a frequently asked question sheet. I know that some of you might have tons of questions. We have those, I think, right? somewhere, we do have those, um, that you can get at the Get Connected Here space. Um, you can grab that. Also, next week, we're doing a, after church, right after church, in the community room, we're doing a Q&A time with me and a few of our pastors. If any questions that you have, anything that you um, want to ask that's not answered clearly uh, on that FAQ sheet, please come, bring your questions. We want to process with you what God's been saying to us and, and help bring as much clarity as we can. Cool? Cool? Yeah? All right. Um, now, back to Christmas. Okay. Uh, Christmas time. Uh, as, as I said, this, this Advent season is a time where we look at the power of Jesus' coming. And uh, Isaiah 9, verse 6, was declared actually hundreds of years uh, before Jesus was born, and it was prophesying about his coming. And this is what it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Can I just pray in light of all the details that the Wonderful Counselor the mighty God, the, the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace would just come and rest on all of us. Lord, thank you for your presence. Thank you that all authority is on your shoulders. Thank you, Jesus, that you came so that we can have relationship with you. And Lord, we're asking that we would all connect to the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace in a fresh and powerful way today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I mentioned, my college alma mater is Baylor. And, um, you know, Baylor's a lot of things, and one of them is, is that it's expensive. Uh, it, it is, it's not cheap. It's the most expensive piece of paper I've ever gotten in my entire life. 
And uh, so, and I, you know, I grew up in a, in a lower middle class, blue collar family. And, uh, you know, my parents were like, dude, you can't go to Baylor. Baylor's not for people like us. That's a quote from my dad. Baylor's not for people like us. But somehow I talked them into it. Um, and uh, we, we entered into this season of cutting corners, right? Like, so it was like anywhere we could save money, we tried to save money. Now, my sophomore year, I lived, now this is going to make any sense to you, but I lived on the opposite side of I-35 than the school. Now, if you ever go to Baylor, you realize it's two different worlds. You cross I-35, you know, you fend for yourself, okay? So I, that's where me and a bunch of dudes, literally about eight guys living in a three-bedroom house. Why? Because we were all cutting corners because his Baylor is very expensive, all right? And so my rent was like 150 bucks. And you're like, whoa, that was so cheap. Yeah, you should have seen my room, all right? Like it was uh, with two other dudes, you know, and like we had no space and we had to build these lofts to put our beds on that we thought we were going to all die and fall off of at night, but we didn't have space for our desk. You know, I mean, it was, it was crazy times, but we had an incredible time at that house. We actually called it the Miracle on 4th Street house, uh, because it was on 4th Street. It doesn't even exist anymore. It was torn down. should have been torn down before I moved in, truthfully. Um, uh, but, but it was crazy. Like, we had so much fun at that house. But again, I lived about a good, you know, solid 20-minute walk from campus. All right? Maybe more like 15 minutes, but, you know, you get the picture. So I needed a bike. But I wasn't going to buy a bike. I mean, we're, we're in a corner cutting season. I'm not buying a new bike. Are you kidding me? And so I went into the garage at my parents' house, which I hadn't been in that garage in years. I go in that garage, and I see my bike from when I was like 12 years old is still there. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I can't believe that they didn't throw this thing out. Now, it barely resembled a bike at this time. It looked mostly like just a pile of rust, but I was, you know, kind of went and picked it up and spun. I'm like, dude, the chain still works. I was like, you know what? I could, this is nothing that a little sandpaper and spray paint can't fix, you know? And so I oiled everything up and took it apart, sanded everything, put it back together, spray painted it red and black, and it looked horrible. It, it looked so bad. It would have looked better if I would have left it all rusty, okay? Like, it just did not turn out good at all. But again, I'm like, I'm trying to save money. And so I, I you know, I'm riding this bike to school. And, you know, every day I rode it, it just became more obvious that it was just a matter of time until the bike just disintegrated. You know, like the seat post was bending down. The handlebars were spinning sideways. There'd be times I'm riding like this to get the wheel to go straight. You know, it was just, it was a mess. But this was not just any bike, right? This was like a BMX racing bike, right, where I tried to fulfill my dreams as a youngster. And so it was meant to be ridden hard. Like, this was not just a bike that you're cruising around. And, like, it wasn't your go-to mountain bike that everybody had on campus. And so there were moments where I was like, you know what, I need to just demonstrate to Baylor University that I was cool a few years ago, and I could do these really cool tricks on this bike. All right? Now, this kind of all came to a head when I was late to marching band practice. yes. I was in marching band in college, all right, all right, trumpet, I was scholarship actually, so you know what, they paid me to look stupid, and I took their money, and I was fine for it, and I got free football, to get to travel to football games for free, so it was awesome, and, and so I'm late to band practice, and so there's about 300, 400 people all on this field surrounding the band director and I come riding over the hill on this BMX bike and it just hits me like, this is perfect. I'm gonna, 
I'm going to come screaming down this hill. hill. I'm going to ride across the field. I'm going to come to the yard marker. I'm going to bunny hop, kind of do a slight little tail whip over this yard marker. I'm going to land. I'm going to skid to a stop. And everyone in the band's going to see this. They're going to begin to erupt in applause. They're going to all of a sudden begin to throw their instruments in the air. And they're going to begin to sing the praises of my amazing ability to bunny hop over a yard marker, all right? And so I am filled with expectation and excitement. I take off down this hill. I come barreling down into the field. And, it, you know, it makes a little bit of a commotion. And so everyone just looks. It's like a movie, right? Everyone just, like, turns and looks. And it's like, you know how life slows down when you're getting ready to do something great? And so it was like slow-mo. It's like I made eye contact with every single person that was in the crowd. Like, I could just, I could see their souls, man. I was looking deep into their eyes. And so I go for it, and I mash down on the pedals to get a little bit more speed because speed is your friend. And right as I mash down on the pedals, the chain snapped. It locked the back wheel up, and the bike starts sliding sideways. I try to save it by jerking up on the handlebars. The handlebars come out of the frame. I'm holding the handlebars. Bike is sliding this way. I flip over the top, crash and burn, slide on my face. And I have to, like, get up, dust myself up, grab the pieces of my bike. Okay, that was the most demoralizing part. It's like I have to go grab the pieces of my bike as everyone is clapping. Not in, like, wow, you killed it, but wow, you're a moron applause. And I like, have to just walk with the pieces of my bike, set it down on the side of the field, get my trumpet out, and just pretend like nothing happened. Let me tell you, that walk from the middle of the field to the sideline, I felt hopeless. I felt absolutely hopeless, man. I, I felt like there was nothing that I could do at that moment that would change how I felt. It was terrible. It was embarrassing. It was disappointing. But, you know, pride always comes for a fall. So in a lot of ways, it was biblical. But the truth is, is that Walking across that field, holding my bicycle, I had no confident expectation of anything good happening out of that moment. You know, hope is actually defined as the confident expectation of good. And we all know the feeling of when life gets so destructive, what you are riding on begins to fall apart. And hopelessness begins to set in. We all know the feeling of losing our confident expectation that anything good is going to come from any aspect of what I'm experiencing. There's the big stuff that hits us all, like the economy, the, the racial climate of our nation. There's the, the stuff that hits more personally, like maybe you need a job. Maybe you've been looking for a job for a long time. Maybe your family dynamics are more complicated than a Rubik's Cube. And this holiday season is not fun. It's not refreshing. It's not exciting because you are just already feeling the weight of the complexity that you're going to have to be navigating over the next couple of weeks. And, it, and that weight gets so heavy that we begin to lose our confident expectation of good. We begin to leave being hopeful and entering into being hopeless. Maybe it's your relationship status on Facebook. You're like, I can't go through another holiday season single. I can't 
handle it and life begins to squeeze us to the point of losing our confident expectation of good. I remember when I planted my, my first church in Seattle in the early 2000s, and uh, I was in a meeting a couple of months after landing there uh, with a group of pastors, and they all were like, man, well, how you doing, J.D.? You know, planting a church can, be, can kind of be up and down. How how you feeling? I was like, guys, I actually feel great. I, I, I'm encouraged. I'm, I'm excited. I'm expectant. And then I'll never forget, this pastor looked at me just with so much compassion in his eyes, and he said, you know what? Year one is always the easiest because you don't have any real expectation of things going good. Built into it, you know that it's gonna be awkward. You know that you're gonna have weird moments. You know that things are gonna be strange. You kind of are prepared for the challenges of trying to build something out of nothing. But he said, you know what? I want you to be mindful of year two. Because at year two, when you expect things to begin to get a little bit better and they don't, it will test your hope. And man, he was absolutely right. Proverbs 13, 12 actually tells us that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. The message version of the scripture says unrelenting disappointment. Unrelenting disappointment leaves you heart sick. And I just feel like that nails it. Unrelenting disappointment. This sickness of unrelenting disappointment, this hopelessness of the soul, it really hits us when what is stressing us out and squeezing us out kind of hits the point of no return, right? Where, where there's nothing that we can physically do that, that is going to be able to change what we are going through. And it begins to feel like we're in free fall. There's nothing that can catch us now. There's nothing that can hold us now. It just seems to be beyond our control. There's actually a moment in scripture when Jesus walks up to a mother who found herself in a hopeless situation. She found herself in a free fall, if you will, in a season where it was pretty hard to have a confident expectation that anything good was gonna come because Jesus met her at her son's funeral. I can't think of anything more painful than burying your own child. It terrifies me. I have to be careful, let myself even think about that because I'll start crying. Painful enough. That in and of itself will stop you in your tracks and exhaust you emotionally. Just the thought of that is just so overwhelming, is so overbearing. But then you just, you say, you know what, this, this is just the beginning of what this woman is feeling because she wasn't just burying her son, she was literally burying her future. Because this woman, it was not just burying her son. She had buried her husband years before. So she was a widow and her livelihood was wrapped up in her son. He was her provider. He was her source of income. He was her source of provision. And now he is gone. She was in free fall. She was 100% hopeless. 
Jesus rolls up on this death march. Literally, they're walking through the streets carrying this dead son. He sees what's happening, and this is what happens. Luke 7, verse 12. Luke 7, verse 12. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow and a large, ta- a, la- a large crowd, excuse me, from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and said, don't cry. When he saw her, his heart went out to her and said, don't cry. And then he went up and he touched the bear. There were, they were carrying him on and, and, they, and they stood, the, bear, the bearer stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother, and they were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet had appeared among us, and they said, God has come to help his people. God has come to help his people. There, there are three principles. Can I give you three things this morning? I know I just give you one usually, but, but I'm, I'm trusting the Sunday after Thanksgiving crowd, you guys can handle three. Three principles in this passage that I believe can lead us back to a place of confident expectation of good in any situation. Three principles that lead us back to a place of confident expectation of good. Principle number one, out of verse 13, it says, he saw her. He saw her. Principle number one, you are not invisible in your pain. You are not invisible in your pain. To feel hopeless is to feel invisible. It's amazing how they go hand in hand when, when we are in those free fall moments, no matter how many people are around you, hopelessness will tempt us to say the phrase, does anyone see me? There's nothing like pain that will make you feel isolated. You can be in a room of your, <clears throat> excuse me, that was not on cue. <clears throat> you can be in a room full of people. You can be in a room full of people that love you. You can be in a room full of people that are there for you. You can be in a room filled with people that have good intentions for your life, but pain and hopelessness will tell you that no one can actually see you. We begin to have conversations with ourselves in the middle of crowded rooms, convincing ourselves that not only are we alone, we are invisible, that no one sees us, that we're going through something that no one in humanity has ever gone through before. How many of you have felt that way? I know I have. No one has felt this level of pain. No one on earth has ever felt this level of rejection, right? Because when we get hopeless, we get selfish. 
Because we, our eyes go internal. We start, does anybody see me? Does anybody notice me? Does anybody hear me? Does anybody know my story? Does anybody know what I have been through? And our tendency is to pull away from those who are around us because we just feel like they can't see us anyways. And so hopelessness, un checked, undealt with, will lead us down a path of feeling invisible and then isolating ourselves because we feel invisible. And we were created to be seen. I've got four kids. You know, none of them have ever said, dad, 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 don't watch this. No one. I got all teenagers now and I still feel like all I do all day is watch stuff. Hey, dad, watch this. Hey, dad, look at this. Hey, dad, did you see this? Hey, dad, did you hear about this? Hey, dad, you know, and look, I'm 41 years old. I still want my dad to see me do what I do. I still want to. I still tell him stories. I still want him engaged. Why? Because we were, we're hardwired to be seen. We're, 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 it's, in our, it's in the fabric of who we are. We're made in the image of God to be seen by the living God. And so it's in us to be seen. And so we have this desire, this craving in us. And what hopelessness does, the reason why it makes our hearts sick is that it tells us that no one can see us. No one can see you. And you're made to be seen. You're hardwired to be seen. And it says that Jesus saw her. That in and of itself would have been healing. Jesus saw her. Look, my oldest daughter, Sophie, I'll never forget this. When she was younger, she was like in a dance. You know how the little girls do that stuff. She was in dance, and, and I really kind of have a pretty high standard of being like, you know what, I am going to be at everything that I humanly possibly can be at that my kids are doing. Right, and, like, and so I say no to things, and I arrange my life around being at the stuff that my kids do. And it's very simple. It's because like at the end of the day, I'm going to be held accountable for them. <laughs> right? My relationship with them. They're with me forever. And so it's like even if I have to say no to something that looks really shiny and good over here, to be at something my kids are doing, to me, that's a W. That's what I want to be. I want to be famous in my own home. All right, that's that I want to be loved there. And so I rarely miss anything. But from time to time, mostly because I'm a terrible planner, there are moments where I'm like, oh, shoot, I didn't see that. I, I didn't see that happen. All right, and this was one of those times where she was like at a dance recital. And, you know, dance recitals, how many of you have been to a few of those? Four hours of glory, can I just tell you, for your kids' 15 seconds of dancing? And you're like, can we split this up, please, you know? And, and they do it like four times in a row. You know, it's like Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night, Sunday, you know, like it's just like, and, and so I went to Thursday night. And I'm like, did it, all right? Then I'm supposed to speak somewhere on Friday. So I like booked my flight and I was gonna like go to the thing on Thursday, fly out on Friday, speak at Friday night, you know, and then fly home and be there or whatever. And so I told Sophie, hey babe, you know, I'm only gonna be able to be there on Thursday, but I can't wait to watch it. And she was distraught, like distraught, distraught. Like to the point where I was like, yo, I'm gonna be there on Thursday. You know what I mean? I was like, I'm trying. You know, I was like, do you know how painful it is to sit through that thing for four times? 
And I'm like, Sophie, like, you got to help me, babe. Like, I, I get it. Like, I, I love when my dad's there too. Like, you got to, but, but why is this hitting you so deep? And what she said, I want to quote her, because what she said was perfect. She said, Dad, when I see you watching me, it gives me courage. I was like, what do you want? You want a pony? You want a castle? <laughs> you want a Ferrari? You know, like what? When I see you watching me, it gives me courage. That's so true, right? When we feel seen by our Father, it gives us courage. It gives us courage to step into who we're called to be. And, 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 and it's amazing that Jesus saw this woman. He saw her in her pain and his heart went out to her. And he then he reached out and he touched what was dead in her life. Isn't it amazing that the emphasis of the story is not the funeral, but the mother? And Jesus said, you know what? I'm going to touch what is dead in your life. And, and, and with that one touch, it disrupted the funeral. I love the description of Jesus as being a funeral disruptor. Jesus disrupted this funeral with one touch. And he touched the son. And the son literally sat up and started talking and hope exploded in that hopeless situation look principle one of entering back into confident expectation of good in your life regardless of what you were going through is that God sees you principle number two is that when he touches what's dead in you it comes to life one touch disrupts the free fall of our lives. It pulls us out of hopelessness and into hope. Verse 14, then he went up and he touched the bier. They were carrying him on and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up, began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Your breakthrough is a touch away. Your breakthrough is just a touch away. Think about all that changed with that one touch from Jesus. Jesus touched that boy and it turned a funeral into a party. It turned their mourning into dancing. It turned their sadness into joy. It, that one touch from heaven changed that hopeless situation into a place of Victory. And I was talking to one of my mentors a couple of weeks ago, and I love how he said this. He said, when things are hard, I don't pray God help. I pray God come take over. I love that. When, when things are overwhelming, when life is squeezing me, when, when I feel myself in, a, in, in an overwhelming season of disappointment, I don't say God help. I say, God, would you come take over? Would you come with that touch that changes everything, that shifts everything, that changes the story from sadness to joy, from hopelessness to hope? Jesus saw her and he touched what was dead and hope broke out. 
What's amazing is that when hope explodes in you, it has an effect on everyone who is around you. When hope breaks out in your soul, it creates a, 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 a season of awe. Verse 16, they were all filled with awe and praised God. They were filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said, and God has come to help his people. I love how Eugene Peterson translates this verse. He says, they all realized that they were in a place of holy mystery. I love that. They all realized they were in a place of holy mystery, that God was at work among them, and they were quietly worshipful and then noisily grateful, calling out among themselves, God is back. God is back, looking to the needs of his people, and the news of Jesus spread all throughout the country. The third principle to get our hope back is we let our ears hear, God is back. God is back. God is back. And, and he is looking to the needs of his people, believing that God is looking out for the needs of his people is everything, right? I mean, just hearing that awakens some hope in your soul. Why is that? It's because testimonies, stories of what God has done are a weapon for us that attacks the hopelessness that is in us. This is why we want to have a testimony culture around here. We want it to be normal practice for you to be sharing with each other what God is doing, the little and the big. Because when we hear the testimonies of what God is doing, if you are in a season where you feel like you are experiencing unrelenting disappointment and you are experiencing a heart sickness of hopelessness, that testimony can wake your heart up to remember, oh yeah, God is back. He sees me and one touch from heaven can turn this situation on its head. This place of hopelessness can turn into a place of hope in just one touch. But let me just be really real with you as I bring this to a close. Heart sickness, heart sickness, when hopelessness allows, when it sets into your soul, these stories that have the potential to create in you holy mystery, when your heart is sick, they create in you a holy frustration. Heart sickness will make you frustrated at other people's breakthrough. Heart, sick will make, heart sickness will make, make you frustrated at, at other people experiencing the goodness of God. Heart sickness will make you angry when someone else gets a breakthrough. Why? Because hopelessness makes you feel invisible. And you feel like God doesn't see you. And you hear stories that God is back. But hopelessness is telling you that God is back for them but not you. And that's why we all have to come and say, you know what, Lord, like my, my, my heart is sick. I need the medicine of a touch from heaven. 
because heart sickness, this hopelessness, this lack of hope, this unrelenting disappointment, it will poison your soul. It will poison your heart. And it will take the very things that you were created to experience and to have in your heart. It will turn those things against you. All of a sudden, you don't want to hear the testimonies of what God's doing. All of a sudden, you don't want to engage with the people of God. You're isolating yourself. You're pulling out of community. All of a sudden, you don't feel like you want to lean into relationships because your heart is sick and that's why Jesus came is to take our heart sickness and to turn it into heart health Jesus is a restorer of what is broken he's a healer of what has been distorted he's a clarity bringer and where there's been chaos he is a peace bringer where it feels like the storm is overwhelming who Jesus is is to touch the heart sickness that is in you and to heal it to turn your mourning into dancing to turn your your sadness into joy and and for you to say you know what this is the year this is the year this one is the year that I step into the Lord's favor and it has nothing to do with my situation my circumstance it has everything to do with my heart position that I can walk through anything and remain hopeful because my hope is not in what I'm going through my hope is not in the security of what's around me my hope is in the God who is for me the God who sees me the God who touches me and the God who is shouting over me that he is back that he is here and he is looking out for the needs of his people Jesus has come so that hope can come Jesus has come so that hope can come do me a favor stand to your feet you know this has been a a season for me personally where I've needed to remind myself often of the hope that comes in heaven. And and I've found myself in, in these moments washing myself, not in the water of the word, but washing myself in the words of my disappointment. And I, I've allowed my heart to get sicker by bathing in the disappointment versus bathing in the medicine of the truth of the Word of God. I believe the invitation for you and for me this morning is that we would be a people that step into the throne room of grace with confidence to experience the heart healing touch of heaven that can take all of our unrelenting disappointment, they can take all of our frustration, they can take all of our fear, can take all of our hopelessness and in a moment that it can turn what was killing us into what is fighting for us, can turn what was being distraction into something that is a motivation, can turn the pain that's in us into a place of healing and promotion. And what I'm believing for today is that if your heart is sick, that the living God comes and touches you and reminds you that he sees you. And with that touch, everything changes because he's with you. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm asking right now for every person in this place that feels like they're holding in their hands a lot of unrelenting disappointment. They're holding in their hands 
unanswered prayers, challenging family dynamics, impossible financial situations, fear about kids and sickness. And Lord, we just say we come and we bring to the altar. We come right now to you and we say we're giving you all of our disappointments. We're saying we need you to come and touch us and to wipe away all the fear, all the shame, all the disappointment. Begin to heal our hearts from the heart sickness of hopelessness with the powerful now touch of hope from heaven. In Jesus' mighty name.